0: Section 8 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3 by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 8 The Avenger, Part 1 by thomas de quincey why callest thou me murderer and not rather the wrath of god burning after the steps of the oppressor and cleaning the earth when it is wet with blood that series of terrific events by which our quiet city and university in the northeastern quarter of germany were convulsed during the year eighteen sixteen has in itself and considered merely as a blind movement of human-tiger passion ranging unchained among men, something too memorable to be forgotten or left without its own separate record. But the moral lesson impressed by these events is yet more memorable, and deserves the deep attention of coming generations in their struggle after human improvement, not merely in its own limited field of interest directly awakened, but in all analogous fields of interest as in fact already and more than once in connection with these very events this lesson has obtained the effectual attention of christian kings and princes assembled in congress no tragedy indeed among all the sad ones by which the charities of the human heart or of the fireside have ever been outraged can better merit a separate chapter in the private history of german manners or social life than this unparalleled case. And, on the other hand, no one can put in a better claim to be the historian than myself. I was at the time, and still am, a professor in that city and university which had the melancholy distinction of being its theatre. I knew familiarly all the parties who were concerned in it, either as sufferers or as agents. I was present from the first to last, and watched the whole course of the mysterious storm which fell upon our devoted city in a strength like that of a west indian hurricane and which did seriously threaten at one time to depopulate our university through the dark suspicions which settled upon its members and the natural reaction of generous indignation in repelling them while the city in its more stationary and native classes would very soon have manifested their awful sense of things and the hideous insecurity of life, and of the unfathomable dangers which had undermined their hearth below their very feet, by sacrificing, whenever circumstances allowed them, their houses and beautiful gardens in exchange for days uncursed by panic and nights unpolluted by blood. Nothing, I can take upon myself to assert, was left undone of all that human foresight could suggest. Or human ingenuity could accomplish. But observe the melancholy result. The more certain did these arrangements strike people as remedies for the evil, so much the more effectually did they aid the terror. But above all, the awe, the sense of mystery, when ten cases of total extermination applied to separate households had occurred, in every one of which these precautionary aids had failed to yield the slightest assistance the horror the perfect frenzy of fear which seized upon the town after that experience baffles all attempts at description had these various contrivances failed merely in some human and intelligible way as by bringing the aid too tardily still in such cases though the danger would no less have been evidently deepened nobody would have felt any further mystery than what from the very first rested upon the persons and the motives of the murderers but as it was when in ten separate cases of exterminating carnage the astounded police after an examination the most searching pursued from day to day and almost exhausting the patience by the minuteness of the investigation had finally pronounced that no attempt apparently had been made to benefit by any of the signals preconcerted that no footstep apparently had moved in that direction. Then, and after that result, a blind misery of all fear fell upon the population, so much the worse that any anguish of a beleaguered city that is awaiting the storming fury of a victorious enemy. By how much the shadowy, the uncertain, the infinite, is at all times more potent in mastering the mind than a danger that is known, measurable, palpable, and human. The very police, instead of offering protection or encouragement, were seized with terror for themselves. And the general feeling, as it was described to me by a grave citizen whom I met in a morning walk, for the overmastering sense of a public calamity broke down every barrier of reserve, and all men talked freely to all men in the streets, as they would have done during the rockings of an earthquake, was— even among the boldest, like that which sometimes takes possession of the mind in dreams. When one feels oneself sleeping alone, utterly divided from all call or hearing of friends, doors open that should be shut, or unlocked that should be triply secured, the very walls gone, barriers swallowed up by unknown abysses. Nothing around one but frail curtains, and a world of illimitable night whisperings at a distance, correspondence going on between darkness and darkness, like one deep calling to another, and the dreamer's own heart the centre from which the whole network of this unimaginable chaos radiates, by means of which the blank privations of silence and darkness become powers the most positive and awful. Agencies of fear, as any other passion, and, above all, of passion, felt in communion with thousands, and in which the heart beats in conscious sympathy with an entire city, through all its regions of high and low, young and old, strong and weak. Such agencies avail to raise and transfigure the natures of men. Mean minds become elevated, dull men become eloquent, and when matters came to this crisis, the public feeling, as made known by voice, gesture, manner, or words, was such that no stranger could represent it to his fancy. In that respect, therefore, I had an advantage, being upon the spot through the whole course of the affair, for giving a faithful narrative, as I had still more eminently, from the sort of central station which I occupied, with respect to all the movements of the case. I may add that I had another advantage, not possessed or, not in the same degree, by any other inhabitant of the town. I was personally acquainted with every family of the slightest account belonging to the resident population, whether among the old local gentry or the new settlers whom the late wars had driven to take refuge within our walls. It was in September, 1815, that I received a letter from the chief secretary of the Prince of M., a nobleman connected with the Diplomacy of Russia, from which I quote an extract i wish in short to recommend to your attentions and in terms stronger than i know how to devise a young man on whose behalf the tsar himself is privately known to have expressed the very strongest interest he was at the battle of waterloo as an aide-de-camp to a dutch general officer and is decorated with distinctions won upon that awful day however though serving in that instance under english orders and although an englishman of rank he does not belong to the English military service. He has served, young as he is, under various banners and under ours in particular, in the cavalry of our imperial guard. He is English by birth, nephew to the Earl of E, and heir presumptive to his immense estates. There is a wild story current that his mother was a gipsy of transcendent beauty, which may account for his somewhat moorish complexion though, after all, that is not of a deeper tinge than I have seen among many an Englishman. He is himself one of the noblest looking of God's creatures. Both father and mother, however, are now dead. Since then he has become the favourite of his uncle, who detained him in England after the Emperor had departed, and, as his uncle is now in the last stage of infirmity, Mr. Wyndham's succession to the vast family estates is inevitable, and probably near at hand. Meantime, he is anxious for some assistance in his studies. Intellectually, he stands in the very first rank of men, as I am sure he will not be slow to discover. But his long military service and the unparalleled tumult of our European history since eighteen o five have interfered, as you may suppose, with the cultivation of his mind. For he entered the cavalry service of a German power when a mere boy and shifted about from service to service, as the hurricane of war blew from this point or from that. During the French anabasis to Moscow he entered our service, made himself a prodigious favorite with a whole imperial family, and even now is only in his twenty-second year. As to his accomplishments, they will speak for themselves. They are infinite, and applicable to every situation of life. Greek is what he wants from you. Never ask about terms. He will acknowledge any trouble he may give you, as he acknowledges all trouble en prince. And ten years hence you will look back with pride upon having contributed your part to the formation of one whom all here at St. Petersburg, not soldiers only, but we diplomats, look upon as certain to prove a great man, and a leader among the intellectuals of Christendom. Two or three other letters followed and at length it was arranged that mr maximilian windham should take up his residence at my monastic abode for one year he was to keep a table and an establishment of servants at his own costs was to have an apartment of some dozen or so rooms the unrestricted use of the library with some other public privileges willingly conceded by the magistracy of the town in return for all which he was to pay me a thousand guineas and already beforehand, by way of acknowledgment for the public civilities of the town, he sent, through my hands, a contribution of three hundred guineas to the various local institutions for education of the poor, or for charity. The Russian secretary had latterly corresponded with me from a little German town, not more than ninety miles distant, and, as he had special couriers at his service, The negotiations advanced so rapidly that all was closed before the end of September. And when once that consummation was attained, I, that previously had breathed no syllable of what was stirring, now gave loose to the interesting tidings, and suffered them to spread through the whole compass of the town. It will be easily imagined that such a story, already romantic enough, in its first outline, would lose nothing in the telling. An Englishman, to begin with, which name of itself, and at all times, is a password into German favour, but much more since the late memorable wars, that but for Englishmen would have drooped into disconnected efforts. Next, an Englishman of rank and of the auto-noblesse, then a soldier covered with brilliant distinctions, and in the most brilliant arm of the service, young, moreover, and yet a veteran by his experience, fresh from the most awful battle of this planet since the day of Fossalia, radiant with the favour of courts and of imperial ladies, finally, which alone would have given him an interest in all female hearts, an antinous, of faultless beauty, a Gracian statue, as it were, into which the breath of life had been breathed by some modern Pygmalion, such a pomp of gifts and endowments settling upon one man's head should not have required for its effect the vulgar consummation and yet to many it was the consummation and crest of the whole that he was reputed to be rich beyond the dreams of romance or the necessities of a fairy-tale. Unparalleled was the impression made upon our stagnant society. Every tongue was busy in discussing the marvellous young Englishman from morning to night. Every female fancy was busy in depicting the personal appearance of this gay apparition. On his arrival at my house, i became sensible of a truth which i had observed some years before the commonplace maxim is that it is dangerous to raise expectations too high this which is thus generally expressed and without limitation is true only conditionally it is true then and there only when there is but little merit to sustain and justify the expectation but in any cause where the merit is transcendent of its kind it is always useful to rack the expectations up to the highest point. In anything which partakes of the infinite, the most unlimited expectations will find ample room for gratification, while it is certain that ordinary observers, possessing little sensibility, unless where they have been warned to expect, will often fail to see what exists in the most conspicuous splendor In this instant it certainly did no harm to the subject of expectation that I had been warned to look for so much. The warning, at any rate, put me on the lookout for whatever eminence there might be of grandeur in his personal appearance, while, on the other hand, this existed in such excess, so far transcending anything I had ever met with in my experience, that no expectation which it is in words to raise could have been disappointed." These thoughts travelled with the rapidity of light through my brain, as at one glance my eye took in the supremacy of beauty and power which seemed to have alighted from the clouds before me. Power, and the contemplation of power, and any absolute incarnation of grandeur or excess, necessarily have the instantaneous effect of quelling all perturbation. My composure was restored in a moment. I looked steadily at him, we both bowed, and— at the moment when he raised his head from that inclination, I caught the glance of his eye, an eye such as might have been looked for in the face of such noble lineaments, blending the nature of the star with that of summer skies. And therefore, meant by nature for the residence an organ of serene and gentle emotions, but it surprised, and at the same time filled me more almost with consternation than with pity, to observe that in those eyes a light of sadness had settled more profound than seemed possible for youth, or almost commensurate to a human sorrow, a sadness that might have become a Jewish prophet when laden with inspirations of woe. Two months had now passed away since the arrival of Mr. Wyndham. He had been universally introduced to the superior society of the place, and, as I need hardly say, universally received with favour and distinction. In reality, his wealth and importance, his military honours, and the dignity of his character, as expressed in his manners and deportment, were too eminent to allow of his being treated with less than the highest attention in any society whatever. But the effect of these various advantages, enforced and recommended as they were by a personal beauty so rare was somewhat too potent for the comfort and self-possession of ordinary people, and really exceeded in a painful degree the standard of pretensions under which such people could feel themselves at their ease. He was not naturally of a reserved turn, far from it. His disposition had been open, frank and confiding, originally, and his roving, adventurous life, of which considerably more than one-half had been passed in camps, Had communicated to his manners a more than military frankness. But the profound melancholy which possessed him, from whatever cause it arose, necessarily chilled the native freedom of his demeanor, unless when it was revived by strength of friendship or of love. The effect was awkward and embarrassing to all parties. Every voice paused or faltered when he entered a room. Dead silence ensued. Not an eye but was directed upon him or else, sunk in timidity, settled upon the floor, and young ladies seriously lost the power, for a time, of doing more than murmuring a few confused, half-inarticulate syllables, or half-inarticulate sounds. The solemnity, in fact, of a first presentation, and the utter impossibility of soon recovering a free, unembarrassed movement of conversation, made such scenes really distressing to all who participated in them, either as actors or spectators. Certainly this result was not a pure effect of manly beauty, however heroic, and in whatever excess. It arose in part from the many and extraordinary endowments which had centred in this person, not less from fortune than from nature, in part also, as I have said, from the profound sadness and freezing gravity of Mr. Wyndham's manner, but still more from the perplexing mystery which surrounded that sadness. Were there, then, no exceptions to this condition of awestruck admiration? Yes, one at least there was, in whose bosom the spell of all-conquering passion soon thawed every trace of icy reserve. While the rest of the world retained a dim sentiment of awe toward Mr. Windham, Margaret Liebenheim only heard of such a feeling to wonder that it could exist toward him never was there so victorious a conquest interchanged between two youthful hearts never before such a rapture of instantaneous sympathy i did not witness the first meeting of this mysterious maximilian and this magnificent margaret and do not know whether margaret manifested that trepidation and embarrassment which distressed so many of her youthful co-rivals but if she did it must have fled before the first glance of the young man's eye which would interpret past all misunderstanding the homage of his soul and the surrender of his heart their third meeting i did see and there all shadow of embarrassment had vanished except indeed of that delicate embarrassment which clings to impassioned admiration on the part of margaret it seemed as if a new world had dawned upon her that she had not so much as suspected among the capacities of human experience like some bird she seemed with powers unexercised for soaring and flying not understood even as yet and that never until now had found an element of air capable of sustaining her wings or tempting her to put forth her buoyant instincts he on the other hand now first found the realization of his dreams and for a mere possibility which he had long too deeply contemplated fearing however that in his own case it might prove a chimera or that he might never meet a woman answering the demands of his heart, he now found a corresponding reality that left nothing to seek. Here, then, and thus far, nothing but happiness had resulted from their new arrangements. But if this had been little anticipated by many, far less had I, for my part, anticipated the unhappy revolution which was wrought in the whole nature of Ferdinand von Harrelstein. He was the son of a German baron, A man of good family, but of small estate, who had been pretty nearly a soldier of fortune in the Prussian service, and had, late in life, won sufficient favour with the king and other military superiors, to have an early prospect of obtaining a commission, under flattering auspices, for this only son, a son endeared to him as the companion of unprosperous years, and as a dutifully affectionate child ferdinand had yet another hold upon his father's affection his features preserved to the baron's unclouded remembrance a most faithful and living memorial of that angelic wife who had died in giving birth to this third child the only one who had long survived her anxious that his son should go through a regular course of mathematical instruction now becoming annually more important in all the artillery services throughout europe and that he should receive a tincture of other liberal studies which he had painfully missed in his own military career the baron chose to keep his son for the last seven years at our college until he was now entering upon his twenty-third year for the four last he had lived with me as the sole pupil whom i had or meant to have had not the brilliant proposals of the young russian guardsman persuaded me to break my resolution ferdinand von harrelstein had good talents not dazzling but respectable and so amiable were his temper and manners that i had introduced him everywhere and everywhere he was a favorite and everywhere indeed except exactly there where only in this world he cared for favor margaret liebenheim she it was whom he loved and had loved for years with the whole ardor of his ardent soul she it was for whom or at whose command he would willingly have died Early he had felt that in her hands lay his destiny, that she it was who must be his good or his evil genius. At first, and perhaps to the last, I pitied him exceedingly, but my pity soon ceased to be mingled with respect. Before the arrival of Mr. Wyndham he had shown himself generous, indeed magnanimous, but never was there so painful an overthrow of a noble nature as manifested itself in him. I believe that he had not himself suspected the strength of his passion, and the sole resource for him, as I said often, was to quit the city, to engage in active pursuits of enterprise, of ambition, or of science. But he heard me as a somnambulist might have heard me, dreaming with his eyes open. Sometimes he had fits of reverie, starting, fearful, agitated. Sometimes he broke out into maniacal movements of wrath invoking some absent person, praying, beseeching, menacing some air-wove phantom. Sometimes he slunk into solitary corners, muttering to himself, and with gestures sorrowfully significant, or with tones and fragments of expostulation that moved the most callous to compassion. Still he turned a deaf ear to the only practical counsel that had a chance of reaching his ears. Like a bird under the fascination of a rattlesnake, he would not summon up the energies of his nature to make an effort at flying away. "'Be gone while it is time,' said others, as well as myself, for more than I saw enough to fear some fearful catastrophe. "'Lead us not into temptation,' said his confessor to him in my hearing, for, though Prussians, the von Harrelsteins were Roman Catholics. "'Lead us not into temptation. That is our daily prayer to God. Then, my son,' being led into temptation do not persist in courting nay almost tempting temptation try the effects of absence though but for a month the good father even made an overture toward imposing a penance upon him that would have involved an absence of some duration but he was obliged to desist for he saw that without effecting any good he would merely add spiritual disobedience to the other offences of the young man Ferdinand himself drew his attention to this, for he said, Reverend Father, do not you, with the purpose of removing me from temptation, be yourself the instrument for tempting me into a rebellion against the Church? Do not you weave snares about my steps? Snares there are already, but too many. The old man sighed and desisted. Then came, but enough. From pity, from sympathy, "'from counsel and from consolation, and from scorn. "'From each of these alike the poor stricken deer recoiled into the wilderness. "'He fled for days together into solitary parts of the forest. "'Fled, as I still hoped and prayed, in good earnest of a long farewell. "'But alas, no, still he returned to the haunts of his ruined happiness, "'and buried hopes, and each return looking more like the wreck of his former self.' AND ONCE I HEARD A PENETRATING MONK OBSERVE, WHOSE convent STOOD NEAR THE CITY-GATES. THERE GOES ONE READY EQUALLY FOR DOING OR SUFFERING, AND OF WHOM WE SHALL SOON HEAR THAT HE IS INVOLVED IN SOME GREAT catastrophe. IT MAY BE OF DEEP CALAMITY. IT MAY BE OF MEMORABLE GUILT. SO STOOD MATTERS AMONG US. JANUARY WAS DRAWING TO ITS CLOSE. THE WEATHER WAS GROWING MORE AND MORE WINTERLY. High winds, piercingly cold, were raving through our narrow streets, and still the spirit of social festivity bade defiance to the storms which sank through our ancient forests. From the accident of our magistracy being selected for the tradesmen of the city, the hospitalities of the place were far more extensive than would otherwise have happened, for every member of the corporation gave two annual entertainments in his official character— And such was the rivalship which prevailed, that often one quarter of the year's income was spent upon these galas. Nor was any ridicule thus incurred, for the costliness of the entertainment was understood to be an expression of official pride, done in honour of the city, not as an effort of personal display. It followed, from the spirit in which these half-yearly dances originated, that, being given on the part of the city, every stranger of rank was marked out as a privileged guest and the hospitality of the community would have been equally affronted by failing to offer or by failing to accept the invitation hence it happened that the russian guardsman had been introduced into many a family which otherwise could not have hoped for such a distinction upon the evening at which i am now arrived the twenty second of january eighteen sixteen the whole city in its wealthier classes was assembled beneath the roof of a tradesman who had the heart of a prince in every point our entertainment was superb and i remarked that the music was the finest i had heard for years our host was in joyous spirits proud to survey the splendid company he had gathered under his roof happy to witness their happiness elated in their elation joyous was the dance joyous were all the faces that i saw up to midnight very soon after which time supper was announced, and that also, I think, was the most joyous of all the banquets I ever witnessed. The accomplished guardsman outshone himself in brilliancy, even his melancholy relaxed. In fact, how could it be otherwise? Near to him sat Margaret Liebenheim, hanging upon his words, more lustrous and bewitching than ever I had beheld her. There she had been placed by the host, and everybody knew why. That is one of the luxuries attached to love. All men seat their places with pleasure, women make way. Even she herself knew, though not obliged to know, why she was seated in that neighborhood, and took a place, if with a rosy suffusion upon her cheeks, yet with fullness of happiness at her heart. The guardsman pressed forward to claim Miss Liebenheim's hand for the next dance, a movement which she was quick to favor, by retreating behind one or two parties, from a person who seemed coming toward her the music again began to pour its voluptuous tides through the bounding pulses of the youthful company again the flying feet of the dancers began to respond to the measures again the mounting spirit of delight began to fill the sails of the hurrying night with steady inspiration all went happily already had one dance finished some were pacing up and down leaning on the arms of their partners some were reposing from their exertions when, oh heavens, what a shriek, what a gathering tumult. Every eye was bent toward the doors, every eye strained forward to discover what was passing, but there every moment less and less could be seen, for the gathering crowd more and more intercepted the view. So much the more was the ear at leisure for the shrieks redoubled upon shrieks. Miss Liebenheim had moved downward to the crowd. From her superior height she overlooked all the ladies at the point where she stood. In the centre stood a rustic girl, whose features had been familiar to her for some months. She had recently come into the city, and lived with her uncle, a tradesman, not ten doors from Margaret's own residence, partly on the terms of a kinswoman, partly as a servant on trial. At this moment she was exhausted with excitement, and the nature of the shock she had sustained mere panic seemed to have mastered her and she was leaning unconscious and weeping upon the shoulder of some gentleman who was endeavouring to soothe her a silence of horror seemed to possess the company most of whom were still unacquainted with the cause of the alarming interruption a few however who had heard her first agitated words finding that they waited in vain for a fuller explanation now rushed tumultuously out of the ballroom to satisfy themselves on the spot. The distance was not great, and within five minutes several persons returned hastily and cried out to the crowd of ladies that all was true which the young girl had said. What was true? That her uncle Mr. Weishaupt's family had been murdered, that not one member of the family had been spared, namely Mr. Weishaupt himself, and his wife, neither of them much above sixty, but both infirm beyond their years, two maiden sisters of Mr. Weishaupt, from forty to forty-six years of age, and an elderly female domestic. An incident happened during the recital of these horrors, and the details which followed that furnished matter for conversation even in these hours when so thrilling an interest had possession of all minds. Many ladies fainted, among them Miss Liebenheim, and she would have fallen to the ground but for Maximilian, who sprang forward and caught her in his arms. She was long of returning to herself, and during the agony of his suspense he stooped and kissed her pallid lips. That sight was more than could be borne by one who stood a little behind the group. He rushed forward, with eyes glaring like a tiger's, and levelled a blow at Maximilian— it was poor maniacal von Harrelstein, who had been absent in the forest for a week. Many people stepped forward and checked his arm, uplifted for a repetition of this outrage. One or two had some influence with him, and led him away from the spot. While to Maximilian, so absorbed was he that he had not so much as perceived the affront offered to himself. Margaret, on reviving, was confounded at finding herself so situated amid a great crowd, and yet the prudes complained that there was a look of love exchanged between herself and Maximilian, that ought not to have escaped her in such a situation. If they meant by such a situation, one so public, it must be also recollected that it was a situation of excessive agitation, but, if they alluded to the horrors of the moment, no situation more naturally opens the heart to affection and confiding love than the recoil from scenes of exquisite terror. End of section eight.